0: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Sales Development Podcast powered by TenBound hosted by David Delaney. My name is James Bodden here to introduce episode 190 featuring Nigel Green, consultant, author, podcast host and David kicks off the episode by asking Nigel how he got started in sales and the journey of how he became who he is today. Somebody that's so deeply entrenched in the sales profession. Nigel and David talk about the reality of being a consultant as the episode continues and Nigel shares how he builds relationships with key stakeholders at each of his clients and how he works with teams and really breaks down what he goes through and how he needs to build foundational relationships throughout each of his clients. Super interesting and should make anybody questioning whether or not to work with a consultant feel great about Nigel's point of view on it. As the episode continues, Nigel gives some really tactical feedback on what actually and consistently works in cold outbound outreach. So if you are currently listening to this episode and you are tasked with doing cold outbound, get your notes out right now because Nigel is dropping some real gems in this episode. And as the episode wraps up, David and Nigel talk about what makes a successful salesperson Things like experience, things like cultivating ways to always get better, and how Nigel sees the growth of successful salespeople through the different work that he does with all of his different clients. Finally, as a special treat, Nigel does let us in on a way to get his new book for free. So you definitely want to listen all the way through to the end of the episode. Leave us a review, head over to 10bound.com to hear more episodes of the Sales Development Podcast, and as always, enjoy episode 190 with Nigel Green. Hello, 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 everybody.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I am joined today by a good friend of mine and top-performing sales consultant writer, And thought leader in this industry who is going to school us on sales development today. So I'm excited to talk to Nigel Green. How are you doing today, sir? I am well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. You know, I mean, we were talking about, you know, some of the trends in the sales development world and, you know, how we can potentially improve performance before the show. But first and foremost, how did you get into sales and build up this practice that's thriving today, writing books and, helping people with their sales performance. Well, I think
2: one, I think Louis Pasteur said it, chance favors the prepared. And I think that's relevant for me because I did not choose sales. I just was able to capitalize on what a beautiful and compelling career sales can be for anyone. So I was a college athlete. I played football and that anyone that plays a sport at a high level knows that you just have to be able to manage a lot of competing priorities. And it, you, it's a real exercise in humility and knowing that you're just not that good. There's always someone that's better. Everything that you do can be replaced by the next person in line. So a function of success is being prepared so that when you get your chance, You're not nervous. You know what to do. You've thought through all the potential scenarios. And a lot of that maps really well to being a sales professional. And so I, I, right after college, went and started working in sales. And it just so happened to be that it was healthcare. Again, another one of those situations where I was too dumb to know that healthcare sales of all the things you could sell at the time, this is 2006, happened to be one of the more lucrative career paths. And so I was. Always an okay seller. I typically would always hit my number. I've been on performance improvement plans in the past, which is one of the questions I ask my clients before they put someone on a pip is have you ever been on one of these before? I was always great. I was never a rainmaker, but realized that when it came to just motivating a team or thinking about the salesperson's perspective and how to get the most out of someone, a lot of my sales managers just sucked at that. They just weren't very good. And so I said, you know what, there's got to be a better way to lead teams. Like nobody wants to join a Friday afternoon meeting. This is dumb. What's wrong with this guy? And so I just really had a heart for wanting to lead teams differently. And so that's really where I started to shine, Dave, is leading sales teams. I had my first chance to lead a sales team. In 2009. And three years later, I was one of, I don't want to sound like I was like the sales leader. I was one of a few sales leaders, but we sold that business to Medline for right at a billion dollars. And then when I left Medline in 2012, I joined a company called Foundations Recovery Network and had that was my first opportunity to build a team from scratch. And we went from zero reps to close to 50 reps and we were doing almost 50 million of revenue. And we sold that business for almost 10 times revenue in 2015. Since then, I've been working with mostly healthcare companies that have a sales team, have a B2B strategy, and they can't afford to miss a number. They've got an equity sponsor or they've got some type of you know, investor backing that wants to get out of that business in three to five years. And so growth is the name of the game and any hiccup along the way is uh, unacceptable. So that's what I do now. I work with management teams that you know, have a complex sales team, typically sales development, and they've got inbound, they've got account managers, they've got national account reps, they've got different
1: layers of management, but one thing's the same. We can't afford to miss a number. That's really interesting. So when you come into a company where do you start? You know, where do you start with the sales team? Because you mentioned, especially management, you know, there's not much training out there for managers. There's not much coaching for the coach, you know, and they, they kind of have to go in and wing it a lot of the time. So that's one thing that I think is a huge, you know, advantage for looking at it from a high level. But when you, when you start with a company and you go, okay, we need to get this profitable within three to five years, where do you start? So that's a great question, and I'll, I'll set
2: it up with an analogy. They say the average millionaire has seven revenue streams or seven income streams. Well, I think about a business as like as a path to being like if you were if this business was a person that was a millionaire that had at least seven income streams. What are the income streams of this business? And what I end up finding, Dave, is that they run one or two or three plays really well and they're struggling at other plays and what i mean play like they they may have the sdr to ae they they may have that SaaS model down and nailed but they don't do channel partnerships they hadn't even thought about it or they don't have an inbound machine that allows for a customer to do a transaction without having to even speak to a human or get further down the funnel without having to speak to a human so i think about okay if the average millionaire has seven income streams, this company has three, what are all the ways that your ideal customer might want to transact with you? So we begin assessing not the sales process, but the buyer's journey. What's the customer sentiment? How does each ideal customer bump into you, right? So where are they hanging out? Where are the traffic sources? And have we built our digital onboarding or even our off digital onboard, all the different ways. I mean, for some companies, it's just putting up more back of bench signs around buses where patients get on the bus to go to treatment. So it could be things like that, things that are kind of like you wouldn't think about it. But but again, it's assessing customer sentiment and then mapping all of your different sales processes to the customer sentiment and the way that they want to do business with you. So then once you do that work, it becomes really clear that, well, you've got a management team that is measuring the wrong activities or putting too much emphasis on an activity that's a very low value, low return on activity. And so we begin to start aligning the roles and responsibilities and then the expectations of each roles and responsibility around getting traction in more channels so that we can map multiple sales processes to different buying experiences based on the way the customer wants to do business.
1: Wow. Okay. So, so I'm still stuck on that millionaire thing. Seven lines of you know income streams. I got to get to work here. Okay. So <laughs> we, we all do. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go seven. Wow. Okay. So there could be multiple opportunities, and a lot of times companies don't see that. So I'm interested though. You you start with the buyer sentiment, you know, the buyer journey. And do the companies ever come back to you and say, you know, why are you starting with that? We just want to know how to sell more.
0: Not All just, the time.
1: you know, All the uh, time. Just tell us how to sell more. I don't care about how people, that's marketing. You know, that's not sales or, you know, do you ever hear stuff like that?
2: Without exception. I mean, it's the first thing, and I, I even get in front of it. I say, you're hearing me say that we're going to start with the buyer's journey and you're going to tell me, well, that's a marketing thing we already have a sales process. It works. And I say, so we can, let's go ahead and have the conversation now about why we're going to do this work because your marketing team doesn't sit in on any sales calls. Are you with me? And they're like, yeah, you're right. They don't do that. Okay. Your sales process was built by a sales leader three years ago. That's not here. So when was the last time it was inspected? Well, that's a good point. We haven't done that in a while you know, we had this black swan event in the last 18 months that totally changed the way business as usual was done. You with me on that? They're like, yeah. Okay. So you think it's worth spending a few hours thinking through your ideal customer, looking through your data, the customers you have, the prospects you would like to do business with, and getting really clear on how they want to do business. And what we end up finding are things like, well, you've got, a, you've got a business that's SaaS business or whatever that's driven by a contract, but you've got no risk mitigating step in between where there's a proof of concept or there's a way to demonstrate value before I sign the dotted line. Well, we live in a world where nobody's signing long-term contracts unless you can show them the value on the front end. So that's a huge problem in your sales process. If you thought about, well, we never thought about that so it's little things like that but yeah it's always met with some sense of resistance and it's not resistance to the idea and it's the same thing that you face with your customers when customers push back the resistance is not to the opportunity not to the exercise it's to doing something different and so we got to help we got to help them figure out that what you're asking them to do while it's different may not be hard and it may not take a long time. And so understanding how to just meet them where they are on that resistance spectrum and being their guide and saying, so it's no different for for a seller that's listening to this, have to do the same thing is to say, I understand why this feels like it's elementary or it's beneath you. Let me tell you what's in it for you.
1: Right. And so when you unpack that a little bit for them, and then you start to notice things, are there issues with their core processes? Because it seems like you'd want to get the core down and make sure that it's really sound and then start to add you know, some of the potential you know, other revenue stream sales processes to that. But I mean, sometimes is it just like you look at the core thing and it's just a complete mess? Sometimes, Dave, it's that the process is
2: fine. You just don't have the right people to do it. Okay, and let me give you an example of that. So I have a client that grew revenue 533% through COVID. Wow. But okay, but when March of 2020 happened, now this is a healthcare company. So their sales reps were used to being at the hospital, at the surgery center with the customer. That was the way it's been done forever. It was Immediately impermissible for them to show up at the hospital. Customers didn't want to see you. They're overwhelmed with patients. I mean, they're pulling people to go beyond COVID wings, and and they're just forget about it. So we had to reengineer their team altogether. We didn't have to change the sales process. We had to change the medium. We switched to a completely virtual. So all of the stages. What I mean, we didn't have to change the process. What I mean is that. Stage by stage, the way we measured deals by stage and days in stage, none of that had to change. We just had to train and hire around the ability to do those activities in Zoom, on a phone call, and not in a human human environment. And what we found is that some of the reps that had previously been core performers – meaning that they were always, you know, 75 to 90% to plan, were immediately top performers. And some of their legacy rainmakers struggled with technology and just weren't going to be successful in the role. And so a lot of tough decisions were made, but it changed the anatomy of the person doing the activities. And then from there, it was all gas.
1: It's crazy. I mean, so, you know, when I was in the corporate world, if you heard about the consultants, right, the consultants are coming in, everybody would kind of tighten up a little bit, you know, because <laughs> that's what happens a lot. You sort of unpack this and you realize, hey, the market has changed or the customers changed, but our people are still the same. And do you ever run into, I mean, either from the executives that you're dealing with or the salespeople that they're kind of like, Little defensive, or you know, hey, this is Nigel guy.
2: Yeah, but I think it's I think it's part of the territory. And like like we said this before, we hit record is that I work ninety percent of the time with a sales leader, so that's someone in the chief revenue or chief of sales, VP, director of business development title. Without exception, it's the CEO that hires me. I don't have sales leaders that hire me. It's always the CEO. And so the first thing that I have to do is disarm the sales leader who's wondering, is my job on the line or why does my sales leader, why does my CEO not think that I'm a competent sales leader? And, And the truth is that if you look at, I like to look at sport because I played sport. If you look at any top golfer or any top football player or baseball, whatever sport you like, There it used to be that they had, they always had a coach. They had their team coach, but now they all, and that could be your CEO, right? If you think about your coach, your designated coach, that might be the CEO or the COO. But then they have all these other coaches that they hire and pay for themselves, like a a dietitian, and then a sports psychologist, and then a mobility coach, and a strength coach. And golfers have a swing coach, and quarterbacks have, you know, a throwing coach. They invest in all of these different inputs and expertise to help them stay at the top of the game. And so it's no different. And I I just tell the sales leader, I'm not ever going to meet with your team without you. I'm not going to talk to the CEO about you without you in the room. I'm here for you. The reality is you want to be elite. I know that, but I don't know anyone that's reached the top level, the pinnacle of the sales leadership career. That doesn't have input from multiple advisors and consultants that are out seeing other parts of the world while you're busy being heads down in this one business, in this one industry. If you want to be elite, you have to have a broader, more global perspective. And it's really hard to do that and be excellent at the nuances and specificity of leading this sales team in this industry for this company. So do you really want to be elite? And then when you map it that way, they go, oh, yeah, it's not so bad
1: hundred percent. And I mean, that's such wise, you know, wise words that if you want to get good at something, look at the best people in the world. They always are surrounded by, you know, consultants, coaches, trainers, nutritionists, <laughs> massage, you know, people, all that stuff, as much as you can afford, right. To get you better. And I just think in the corporate world, it's a little bit different because it, I think you have, and the way that you said it, you you have to overcome some initial resistance that might be there. But, you know, I remember when I was in the corporate world, I always had that, that feeling, but one of my managers always had consultants coming in, agencies, consultants, trainers, and, you know, he just kept getting better and he was more successful and he was better. And and all of a sudden the light bulb turned on. Hey, these people are here trying to help, you know, they're trying to help me get better. So.
2: It's interesting, you know, you you point to one problem that I see, and for the CEOs that are listening to this, lean in for this conversation. When you think about the budget that you've dedicated to sales training or sales consultants, I'll argue that there are probably a few exceptions, but for the majority of companies, 90%, and sometimes it's probably even bigger than that, 90% or greater of your training dollars and consulting dollars is for your frontline sellers, and you're leaving your management team on an island. And there is a whole, unique, discrete set of skills that are required to lead a sales team that just aren't innate. And they don't get developed just because you gave them a title. And because they were good at sales doesn't mean that they're going to be good at coaching top performers or helping you, the management team, think through the ways in which the product needs to evolve to maintain some sense of competitive advantage or that they're capable of going with you to the board meeting and talking about the forecast for the business over the next 90 days, that's different.
1: And if you don't equip them with that, your business is going to struggle. 100%. It's funny because in, earlier in my career, I was selling sales training programs and we had a manager, you know, sales manager leadership training program and nobody bought it. Nobody would buy it. And I still it's like an evergreen problem that people don't invest in their kind of and it seems like you want the staff sergeants, you know, you want the the frontline sergeants to be the high most highly trained individuals because they're leading small squadrons into battle, you know, but it seems like and maybe do do you find this that still today we don't put enough emphasis on training frontline managers.
2: Oh, I see it all the time, Dave. And it's, it's kind of like, Crazy. it's why I've decided that like, you know, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let Anthony, Anorino, and Jeb and, and all, you guys are great at training the seller. I exist because I think that there is a whole world of sales leaders out there screaming, I just don't have it. And my CEO assumes I'm going to get it but I don't know where to turn. And so I want to be that resource. And and in fact, I don't do sales training. I just tell people, like when I get brought in and then they say, well, we got to train our salespeople. I'm like, well, you do, but I'm not, I'm not doing it. There are so many other companies
1: that are far better qualified at training salespeople. I'm here to make your leader better. Nice. Okay. That's what we need, dude. And actually just on a side note, I'm reading this book by john McMahon called the qualified sales leader you should definitely check it out so i've got i've got a podcast called revenue harvest that
2: supports my book revenue harvest and john will be in season two john and i are kindred spirits you're going to love that episode because you know he and i are ex college athletes and we just go back and forth i mean my production team that edits the interview said it's the only one in two seasons where they said no edits. These guys just—they just nailed
1: it. So you'll like that one. brushing it. Okay, so first we're getting we're getting your book, and then I would recommend this one. And just a quick side note: John McMahon, He came into when I was a sales manager at Glassdoor, and he ran a, a training for us where the whole training was a movie called Twelve O'Clock High. And so he he would show clip of the movie and then do a, you know, an exercise based on what we were watching in the movie. And it was, I still remember it It was a terrific training. It's a great movie. And I definitely would recommend you look at it from the point of view of leadership training. So anyway, so that's my (laughs) quick, quick story. 12 o'clock high folks. We'll put the link in the description. So let me ask you this. As you're working with sales teams and you hear about struggles that they've had, what are some of the top things that you hear in the marketplace that sales and the SDR teams are struggling with these days? Let's
2: talk about one that I think is really relevant to the sales development teams. And that is this, maybe, and I might be bold here, but the beginning of the end of the legacy sales development role. And that's not to say that Outbound is done because I think that I'm more bullish on outbound now than I've ever been, but you're seeing the humble return of the phone. You're seeing an increased adoption and use, effective use of video. Email has never been less effective. And What we're used to, which is this like Aaron Ross, Mary Lou Tyler, response rate, an email that used to be eight, then it was five. And it's a certain number of new contacts put into, into a cadence a day. It's just not working. And so the sellers that had experience before we had all this specialization, what we, you know, old, old dinosaurs, the full cycle reps and The the sales development reps that have a little bit of uh, EQ, like the, the emotional intelligence enough to know, would I open this message? Would I reply to this? Does this even make sense to me? Those sellers are having far better success in building and closing pipeline because everybody just doesn't want an email right now. And so there's been this trend towards, well, you got to get out of the scripted messages and you've got to add personalization to it. And and while I advocate that, yeah, that's a great starting point, what I'm telling folks now is that personalization is the price of entry. Like, don't even bother if you're going to personalize, but don't think that's enough. It is just the starting point. Relevancy is far more important. And let me give you some examples of the difference. So you can personalize it and say, hey, Dave, I saw I loved your post about this. And I saw you went to this school, go whatever, go ducks. Okay, that's personalization. But you better very quickly tell me why this email is going to make my life better. Because the brain in its simplest form goes to fight or flight at some point. Is this Helping me or is this hurting me? And really it's danger is what the brain is looking for. And danger may seem like a bit of a dramatization, but distraction and irrelevance is danger because it keeps you from doing something that you can be doing. That's going to help you achieve your work goals and ultimately your career goals. So the brain is very quickly trying to figure out, is this danger or is this useful? And if you you can have a really highly personalized message that very quickly becomes all about your product and service and it's no longer relevant. And the brain puts it as danger and it's done. And so you've got to be able to make your message relevant. And the only way to do that is slowing down. you got to go slow to go faster. It's doing more research, putting fewer contacts in your pipeline but having better messaging and you'll create pipeline faster if you just slow the heck down and think about what you're doing.
1: Okay. And so as an example, you know, if you read your email that you're sending and you're like, no, I would not respond to this, you know, or, you know, your call script or something like that. And, you know, someone who is coming in, you know, as a newer seller and they haven't been, In the shoes of their prospect. So, you know, they might be calling people that have 20 years of experience, right, in the industry. And they're just this guy who showed up for work, you know, six months ago and now he's calling, right? How do they go about bridging that gap to where they can write a message or write a script that sounds credible, but yet they don't have that, you know, industry experience that the person has that might potentially? You know, respond.
2: Oh, that's such a great question. And I was just talking about this with a team literally this morning in a sales training session with their manager, where it's like, you just lean into all that. You have empathy and you speak to it and say, Hey, Dave, you've been in this business for 20 years and you're probably wondering why in the world would I give Nigel 10 minutes of my time? And I get that. And that's why I'm reaching out to you. And that's the key thing. You you have to, you don't argue, you don't, you just say, And that's why I'm reaching out to you. While I'm new, I still think that with your experience, you're going to be able to quickly determine if this service works well with what you're already doing. So I know you're busy. That's why I only need five minutes of your time for us to quickly determine if this is even
1: going to be helpful for you or not. Tuesday is better or Thursday better. You just lean into all that. Got it. And this is just, a. am just curious, like from a business perspective, if you're the buyer, is there value in the salesperson? The fact that the salesperson is working with a number of different companies, but the buyer is, you know, they're kind of heads down working at their company. They don't get out much, especially now. There's no trade shows. There's no conferences. There's no, you're just sitting in your house, you know, on a Zoom meeting. Is there value in the fact that the salesperson is, is talking to their peers every day? situationally, yeah
2: situationally, I, mean, I think it's situational. Okay. I mean, I think if you work with Coca-Cola or you work with Google, or if you work, I mean, you, you fill in the blank, right? If it's something that's ubiquitous and everybody's going to get it. Yeah. But if it's Johnny's brick and mortar company, it's just noise. Mm. It's just noise.
1: Yeah. So then we're back to, you have to understand you know, the buyer and, and their pain points and how you might be able to be useful to them and then approach them in a way that is either kind of a yes or no then. I mean, when we're, we're talking straight outbound. It's like, I get you, I get your world. Here's how we could potentially help. Can we talk for five minutes? Is that is that essentially the way that we have to think about it? I think so. And this
2: is why we need to talk. Okay. So it, it's like setting a clear... This is why I suspect you'll receive value from talking to me. Got it. Okay. It's not this broad sweeping generalization of we help companies that struggle with, it's like, no, Dave, you are the CEO of a company that does this. And I know you struggle with this. If it's true, five minutes, I think I have an answer for you. And that requires research.
1: Right. Because if I, if I am, you know, if I happen to be struggling with that particular issue and someone calls me up and says that, then I would give them time. But if I'm not, or, you know, it feels irrelevant, then it immediately goes into the, the waste paper basket. Right. So I guess we we still have to deal with a lot of rejection in sales, which is, is that fair to
2: say? Yeah, and I think that rejection, oh, it's so it's I was at Outbound this past week or 2 weeks ago down in Atlanta and Jeb Blunt put on just a phenomenal clinic on using rejection. You know, every potential rejection you could imagine, this man was able to quickly spin that into a reason why you needed to pay attention. And a lot of it, I think, comes out of his book, Fanatical Prospecting. But the essence is like, I'm too busy. I don't have time to meet right now. I know you're really busy. And that's exactly why we need to meet. Because you're so busy, I can't help but wonder if you or anyone in your organization is giving this priority enough attention. That's why I want to manage it for you. So like every potential where we've already got, we already have a vendor that does this for us. I know you have a vendor that does this and I suspect things are going great, but in the rare case that something may not be going as well as it needs to, at least you'll have me as an extra resource. That's why we need to meet for five minutes. You know, it's just, it's just under, it's not arguing with the customer, but it's just recognizing that, Look, you got to be different. And how you be different is listen,
1: agree with them, and then kind of find the crack in the dam. Right. And, and so, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be that rejection. It's not, and, and so it could be that your skills are not up to par, you know, as that sales professional in that you, you, you haven't mastered all the objection handlers you know that that Jeb Blunt is talking about, but it could also be that it's just not the right time for for that person that you're talking to, so do you find that salespeople take that personally and they sort of start to withdraw a little bit because they don't want to deal with all that rejection, or do they bounce back and try to improve their skills you know and handle those objections better? I think. The
2: elite sales reps see it as a win because that's exactly what it is. Rejection is a win because it's one of two things. Either it really is no, which is great. No is the second best answer. The worst thing you can have is someone string you along and keep kicking the can down the road. So at worst, it's the second best answer you could get. No matter what, it's a response. Okay, so it's an opportunity for you to say, okay, this isn't for you. Would you mind telling me why? And this is where where sellers need to learn that oftentimes you're not losing deals because they went with a competitor, you're losing deals due to apathy. And apathy is no feeling or opinion about it whatsoever. So that means that they were kind enough to tell you no thanks and you should be appreciative of that. But what you're asking them to do is not as important as some other initiative within the company that they need to devote time, energy and resources to. You lose 90 percent of your deals. To no decision or a decision to talk to another vendor in another category about another problem in the business. And your job, when you get met with rejection in the form of an actual response is to understand why this isn't a priority for the business now, because it may not help you with this sale,
1: but on the next one, you'll know how to make it more relevant. Yeah. And it seems like the best salespeople out there are the ones that can qualify deals, you know, quickly and understand. I mean, it's just a lot of it comes with experience. I I remember this one lady that when I was the SDR, she had been in the industry for like 30 years. And it was just hilarious, like going on sales calls with her because she could sniff out qualification in like five seconds, you know, where somebody else would put the deal in the pipeline and you know, keep talking about it for six months, and it was never going to close anyways, this lady could do it in like five minutes. Exactly. And
2: you know, there are ways in which to do that. Mm -hmm. And
1: yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Well, Nigel, dude, this has been so informative. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your wisdom with us. If people want to pick up the book, or they want to learn more about you, what's the best way to get that going?
2: Yeah, so you can get the book anywhere you get books. But if you if you go buy it from the RevenueHarvest.com, I'm giving it away for free. You just pay for shipping and handling. That's a fixed cost that no one gets around. You can go buy it at Amazon and they'll get it to you tomorrow, and you'll pay you know 18 bucks or whatever. Or you can go pay half that. I'll get it to you in a couple of days and sign it. So everybody right. that buys it from the RevenueHarvest.com gets the signed copy. So if you're interested in stuff like that, go
1: get it. Revenue harvest, dude. Well, I wish you and everybody listening a bountiful harvest (laughs) because that's what we're doing this for. So thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom on the Sales Development Podcast. We'll have you on again soon. Thank you. My pleasure.
2: Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development with your host, David Delaney. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10Bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10Bound.com.